0: So I don't know, I've always sort of lived in language. We've all felt a part of that story. How I look at it is that poetry is not the transcription of experience, it's the transformation of it.
1: You're listening to Retellings, the Washington University Creative Writing
2: Podcast Series. Welcome, listeners. You've tuned into Retellings, a part of Hold That Thought at Washington University. I'm Rebecca King, and today I meet with essayist Edward McPherson to discuss truth and memory in nonfiction. After our conversation, I meet with one of his former students, Patrick Johnson, to discuss some of the insights Edward gave in the classroom. Edward McPherson, assistant professor of English at Washington University, is the author of two nonfiction books, including Buster Keaton. Tempest in a Flat Hat, and The Backwash Squeeze and Other Improbable Feats. Today we will be talking to him about one of his recent essays, entitled Dallas, From Afar and Up Close, which appeared in two parts in the Paris Review in December 2012, contrasting Dallas the city with Dallas the TV show, and how history, both real and fictional, can define a place. You mentioned that you used to live in Dallas. Is that what inspired you to write the essay?
0: Yes and no. There is always some sort of personal relevance. I mean, I grew up in Dallas, sort of born and raised, and... As I was thinking more generally about history and places that are sort of uncomfortable with their own history, they announced they were going to restart the TV show. That was interesting. And then the anniversary of the JFK assassination is this year. So I ordered the DVDs of the show. Just curious. I'd never watched it. But I do remember as a kid in the 80s. Constantly being asked, oh, do you know Jr? I went to England once, and that's all anyone wanted to talk about was, you know, do you have an oil well? Do you know Jr? Do you know (laughs) And So again, you sort of dip your toe in, and I thought, wow, this is fascinating. And a lot of these issues of the way the city came to grips with the assassination and the way people still treat it there now, I thought, oh, well, there's plenty, plenty here for me.
2: It was really interesting to see how you pulled the TV show, the history of the city, and the JFK assassination together. And there's this tension between how the world sees Dallas based on this TV show versus how... Dallas sees itself. Yeah, and it was a
0: double-edged sword because between sort of the TV show and the Dallas Cowboys partly helped the city clean up its image a little bit. And the city really wasn't the viper's nest of reactionary politics that it sometimes gets painted at. The trip was going very well for JFK up until the assassination. But suddenly there are all these narratives being told about Dallas, and then there are ones a Dallas that were told by Dallas, and then there's the truth somewhere in between that, and it's very complicated for them. And you know, there's a certain defensive posture taken when so many people are saying bad things about you, and then what Dallas does want to acknowledge there, and what it doesn't, and what's true and what's not. You know, it makes it sort of an uncomfortable place at times.
2: Well, and you said this Dallas essay is a part of a larger project that you're working on now. Can Mm -hmm. you tell us a little more about that?
0: Sure, sure. And again, it's coming together, but the way I see it is a collection of essays tied to places that have sort of a discomfort with their own history. And it's either, in the case of Dallas, their perception of themselves is butting up against a cultural perception, things in the past that won't stay buried, the way the past intrudes today. Other essays, that Gettysburg essay that's coming out soonish, and that's a little more personal. It's about a house in Gettysburg, a family house, overloaded with history and historical artifacts. It was built right after the Civil War, and it's a little more personal. It's sort of, uh, what do we do with the past? What gets passed down in families and sort of the tension of that and sort of can we represent the past and how do we represent the past and do we even want to? I'm going to write one on New York City, where I lived for years. Right now, looking at St. Louis, just beginning. This is a fascinating city, and I'm just getting to know it. I knew Dallas very well. I don't know St. Louis at all, and so in some ways I get to see it as an outsider. And there's so many interesting things here about the World's Fair, issues of race and, and things about the city that are, again, sort of uncomfortable and interesting.
2: So what is drawing you to this idea of identity and place?
0: Place in some ways becomes identity There's a quote by Joan Didion, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. That's part of what interests me, is these stories we tell about ourselves and the places we live. And those narratives get upended, they get sort of perpetuated in all sorts of ways. And it can be personal and it can be political. I think that's what sort of interests me.
2: I love that. Do you see that theme running through your fiction as well, then?
0: Insofar as the short stories that are historical, certainly. There's a line from Mark Twain, which I'll probably butcher, but it's something like, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. And so what I do like about historical fiction is that it sort of tackles the past while at the same time open up sort of new interpretations of the present, and that's the thing that I like about it. We're writing about the past, but we're, we are ourselves, and we're sort of creatures of, of our time and place, and so it can't help but somehow reflect back. And anything you write about, historical, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, you're finding some sort of personal entry point. There's some sort of connection between you and what you're writing about. That's what you sort of hope for. There are things that I research and that I end up not writing about. You know, I go through weird obsessions that end up just being obsessions and sort of my friends and family have to endure. Like, I was really interested in chorizo and when it started getting imported in the US or soda siphons, I went through an intense love of soda siphons, those old timey ones from the 20s and I collected some of those. And New York City water tunnels is another love of mine that's probably gonna go nowhere. But I mean, the world is it's such a far stranger place than I
2: can ever imagine. I'm really interested in talking to you as a nonfiction writer about the idea of retelling events, whether it's literary journalism or memoir, also the idea of truth mm-hmm. and how strictly you have to follow the truth.
0: This is sort of two questions. Remind me to get back to the truthiness of it all. But I'll start with the retellings. Part of this we've already discussed a little bit, but it's the stories we tell ourselves, and those are the narratives. And first it's, I mean, whether there ever is sort of a stable, objective view. You know, you show nine people the same thing, and they give you nine different accounts or history. Historians are quite comfortable. It's funny, it's the rest of us who aren't as comfortable with sort of the malleability of history. It's slippery, right? On the other hand, the ideas of memory, there's interesting investigations in memory, and even things coming from some neuroscience these days that, and I'm going to get this hopelessly wrong, but there's findings that every time you recall a memory, the path in the brain, the synaptic lightning, the way it, it goes, isn't always the same to access the same memory, right? So you actually, are taking a different path to get there. And again, I've possibly butchered the science, but what's interesting to me there metaphorically is that you're actually rewriting it as you think it. I'm not saying there isn't sort of a truth and that it's all what you make of it, but there are ways that we rewrite our own histories and our own memories as we age. These things are shifting and fluid in ways that are interesting, and confronting that is more interesting to me. Then in terms of the truthiness question, which does come up in nonfiction, it depends on your project and what you've signaled to the reader. For example, in my Dallas piece, those are the facts about the city the best I could find them. I wasn't bending them towards my will. That said, any representation of the facts or of what happened is just a slice. I mean, in the same ways that you're going to take this hour-long interview and dice it down to 15 minutes, and in some way you have all the power there. It is a section of the whole. If I write about my father, it's just my view of my father. My sister can write about my father, and it's a different man. It's my father is seen through my sister. Instead of being sort of dismayed by this fact, thinking that there is no Father with a capital F, that's fine, because I think in some ways this is the best we have. But going back to the contract, If it's a piece of literary journalism, then people think I'm playing by certain rules and ethical concerns of journalism. If it's a piece of memoir, I can do other things in that. And part of it is just signaling it. People only get really upset if you break the sort of contract you've had with them. It's a spectrum, and that's what I tell my students. And they need to sort of place themselves, what they're comfortable with. I get some students who who are very uncomfortable with recreating dialogue in the past. And some people say, oh, well, I remember how it went, and that's fine for them, and they write it down. And some of them say, I have no idea what's said, and I'm not comfortable making it up. And so that's fine, too. And they can say things like, I imagine the scene went like this. And then we know it's their best guess. It's sort of their emotional truth of what happened. I mean, it's such a huge genre. And I feel sometimes uncomfortable speaking for the whole genre, because it's a very fragmented genre. I mean, nonfiction, the name is already sort of goofy. It's everything that's not fiction. That's like dividing the world into ducks and not ducks, right? It's, it's silly. And even then what falls into our label of nonfiction, literary journalism, essay, and memoir, if that's one way to, to sort of slice it, so, they're so different.
2: So what do you like to read then?
0: Anything and everything. I have a stack of 20 books on the radiator at home waiting for the semester to end. And they're a mix, a bunch of nonfiction on there, obviously. But there's the stuff that's sort of out in the world and people are talking about that I want to read, but also older stuff that I've sort of neglected. And then I'll read fiction, pulpy fiction. I love Raymond Chandler. I'll read Woodhouse, Beachy Woodhouse in the summer. I mean, I'll read anything and everything
2: I think reading and reading widely is the advice that we've heard on this series over and over again (laughs) how important it is to just draw from all different genres.
0: And so not to add to this broken record but sure I have plenty of students who self-identify I want to be a writer but we're sort of scared to say that or what do I have to do to be a writer and I tell them read because particularly when you're in college or wherever you are, your job, you may not always have time to write. And if you are meant to be a writer, you'll find that time or you'll squeeze it in. But, you know, sometimes life conspires against you and you just can't write. I mean, the six months after you have a baby, forget it. Don't, you're not going to write. But what maybe you can do is read, right? And that's a way to sort of sustain you. And you learn so much by reading. And You read it once, and then you read it again to sort of get under the hood. There are things we're stealing from other writers, techniques, craft lessons to be learned. And you're training yourself in these classes to be a better reader as well as a writer. And it's just as important, because you're a reader of your own work.
2: Many writers are as fervent about the importance of reading as they are writing. A quick Internet search pulls up Stephen King, who said... If you don't have time to read, you don't have the time or the tools to write. Simple as that. Or Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said, I cannot remember the books I've read any more than the meals I have eaten. Even so, they have made me. Now we turn to Patrick Johnson, a former student of Edwards, who explains how dabbling in nonfiction allowed him to explore new ideas he found difficult to express through his poetry. He also mentions one of Edwards' essays on the card game Bridge, which appeared in Tin House's February issue on The Games We Play.
1: I'm Patrick Johnson. I'm a first year poet in the MFA program at Washington University. I took Edwards' creative nonfiction class at his graduate level class, and I was actually the only writing MFA student in the class. It was two visual art MFA students. A law student and me. So that was really exciting and dynamic because I think sometimes writers are used to having a certain conversation with people who have read similar texts or have similar interests. And I was able to do something different. We were able to each bring a different perspective. I'm always sort of interested in big ideas and how to get there. So nonfiction kind of provides an opportunity to explain, but also comment and get at different emotional truths that lay behind the actual thing. When you read a nonfiction essay, there is this idea of the real behind it in a way that's not true for a poem. So I think readers want to know what the emotional truth or what the historical fact is behind a piece. I really like how Edward can move between the kind of mundane to the more meaningful. For example, in his essay on Bridge, it's interesting to me the connections that Edward makes between the playing of a card game and life and the human experience, because it's very difficult to talk about big things like the human experience, but these are the things that we're sort of charged to do as writers. I think the struggle is always how to come at those things, how to pose the questions that we want to ask. Edward has this really great epigraph to his syllabus by Joan Didion, which is, we tell ourselves stories in order to live, and I think that was just an interesting backdrop to a lot of what we were reading, because it was interesting to see what motivations authors had to write about things.
2: Many thanks to Edward and Patrick for taking the time to meet with us today. If you're interested in hearing a selection from Edward's essay on Dallas you can visit our website at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. Thanks again for tuning in to Retellings. Join me next week when I meet with the fabulous, fabulist writer, Kelly Link, about zombies, archetypes, and the books that shape us.